Hello, and welcome to another episode of Gaze Ahead. This conversation is kind of neat. We talk about, of course, mindfulness, but we touch on parenting, motherhood, the social discourse that exists, and all the shoulds. I use air quotations when I say shoulds that exist for mothers and how guilt plays a factor in our decision-making as parents. We touch on a lot of cool stuff in this episode. Dr. Erica Horwitz is a registered psychologist. She's an author. She used to be the director of counseling services at Simon Fraser University. Now she's a guest lecturer at SFU and UBC. She's based in Vancouver. She's a certified mindfulness-based stress reduction teacher through the Center of Mindfulness in Medicine, Healthcare, and Society at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. And her work in mindfulness therapy has helped people over the last 25 years with a diverse range of challenges present in their lives. Her book is called Through the Maze of Motherhood, Empowered Mothers Speak, which she published almost a decade ago. And she's a total advocate for mothers, this one. So have a listen. I hope you enjoy. Erica, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to speak with you this morning. Thank you for inviting me with the great contributions that you're making to our communities. So I'm really glad to participate. Well, I want to start off just hearing about your story. Um, Tell us a little bit about you, your history, and how you got to be where you are today in your career. Oh, boy. I'm 60, so it's a long story. Um, (laughs) I was born and raised in Mexico, and when I was 20, I moved to Canada. So I did all my education here. And I'm a mother of two adult women. Um, So I, you know, because I went through that. So being a mom, I had a pretty big interest in parenting and motherhood. And uh, so all the research I did in university since my undergrad related to families and and their children. Um, As I went along in my journey, I... um, one of my daughters struggled with a lot of anxiety when she was a teenager, and uh, and that was very hard for me. It was very um, beyond stressful, really. She it was it, it was very serious. Her anxiety would turn to depression, so on. So then I needed something. Like I needed some something, and uh, and I happened to go to a training, and they um, they spoke about mindfulness. This training was for uh, psychologists who support people with eating disorders. And, uh, and I just bought a book by the Dalai Lama. I had never read any of his work. And that's the meditation he practices as well. So from a professional area and a personal area, I came to, to mindfulness. Uh, and I became very interested because of my work, but also for my personal life. And that's really what carried me through uh, the many years of her struggles. So, mm-hmm. you know, you could almost say that motherhood and mindfulness are like two separate interests in my life and they can look like that. Sometimes I'm doing mindfulness as nothing with motherhood and so on. But, um, but for me, my interest in motherhood and my being a mother in a way is what led me to take a big interest in, in mindfulness. So ever since then, I've done a lot of different trainings in mindfulness. I've gone to numerous retreats. I meditate every day. I used to be the director of counseling services at SFU for about 12 years at 10, 12 years. And, um, and I brought mindfulness to, to SFU. I, I had a drop-in mindfulness 
uh, open to staff and faculty. I had uh, several groups that I encouraged my staff to offer. Uh, one was based on dialectical behavior therapy, which is a mindfulness-based therapy. Uh, so I, you know, had a, a, a big interest in bringing that to people as well. So mm -hmm. today I, I'm in private practice, and I, uh, you know, a lot of the work I offer includes uh, mindfulness. And I'm still a mother to two adult daughters, so that's still a thing. And so mindfulness <laughs> has been a very helpful way for me to navigate uh, mm -hmm. my experience as a mom. Interesting. And this acronym has popped up a few times. Um, it also appears on your work and your website. Mm -hmm. What is MBSR? What does that stand for and what does it mean? So MBSR is Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, and it is a program that was developed by John Kabat-Zinn mm -hmm. at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. He began his work because he worked in a, in a university hospital and there was many patients who, who lived in pain or had health issues that doctors didn't know what else to do. So he thought, well, maybe if we do yoga and mindfulness, maybe that'll help them. This was back in 79, 1979. And, and there's a lot of research that's been done in that. Part of my journey in 20, 2009, I think it was 2010, I did all the training at the University of Massachusetts to become a mindfulness-based stress reduction uh, certified teacher. And the program is really a, an eight-week program that offers not only learning how to practice mindfulness meditation, but it also teaches you a lot about how the mind works, how we are conditioned to react and so on and so forth. Uh, it's, it's a pretty remarkable course. I mean, when I've offered it, I offered it at SFU and I've offered it in, uh, through my private practice. The sentence I hear the most or that I've gotten emails or texts is that, that it's life-changing. Mm -hmm. And I would say that for me, it was life-changing to learn mindfulness. Yeah. Mm, that's so cool. So tell me a little bit about what that looks like for your clients, you know, when you're you're incorporating mindfulness-based stress reduction into their lives. Are you teaching them how to meditate? Are you teaching them, what are you teaching them or what are you telling them to encompass into their lives? Well, I can start by saying what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is really the practice of present moment awareness. And our awareness, like if you say, what am I aware of right now? The things you're aware of come through your senses, through what you see, you hear, you smell, you touch. But also, if you pay attention to your present moment's experience, you will also notice what's happening in your inner world, whether it's sensations in the body or emotions that manifest as sensations or thoughts. So mindfulness is the present moment's awareness of all of that. So it's like Practicing mindfulness is like creating this container of awareness where you see everything that's entering, you observe what's entering your awareness. Mm. So part of what you're aware of is your thoughts. And to me, as a psychologist and somebody that started studying psychology in 1983, when I took my first class in my undergrad, um, it's one of the greatest things that's come to our field because it explains the mind in a way that helps us realize that our thoughts are not uh they're not all true factual or helpful right mm -hmm. they, they just are like i i think of the mind as a 
you know, a factory of thoughts, right? It just produces thoughts and thoughts mm-hmm. like the Twinkie factory that just pours <laughs> out, you know, the dough onto the, uh, you know, the baking pans. And <laughs> so it's, it's constantly doing that. And the problem is that we tend to identify or believe those thoughts. And that's where we get in trouble. So mindfulness teaches us, oh, there's that thought. Oh, that thought is telling me that I'm going to fail the exam or that I'm not going to get that job. It's just a thought. It's, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's neurons firing, really. It's what it is. So when you're able to say, oh, there's that thought, you're no longer in the thought. You're watching the thought. And that gives you distance to, in a way, discern if it's a thought worth investing in or you can just let it pass. And so then you can invite the mind instead of being in that thought to come to this moment. And you can use your senses. You know, what am I seeing right now? What am I hearing? What am Mm. I smelling? And that brings you back. It's Mm. a very simple way of bringing you back. So the the mindfulness, pretty well all the therapies or the mindfulness-based stress reduction program, a lot of its benefit is the ability to observe experience without getting pulled by the experience. Mm-hmm. And the mind blowing f- fact that you are not your thoughts, you know, that is such a, such a, a different way of thinking. It's a different way of feeling and, and knowing. And I think it's, it's so important that you, you know, to understand you are not your thoughts. Your thoughts, like you said, are apart from you. They're over mm-hmm. here, so to mm-hmm. speak, and you are here and, and they are separate from you. And drawing that observation, that ability to observe thoughts, um, that sounds easier than it is, I think, right? Because our minds go and we think our minds are ourselves and our minds just continue to go. So you said you meditate every day. I want to hear a little bit more about how you keep yourself separate from your thoughts. What's your practice? What do you, what's, what tricks work for you in your day-to-day? Well, there's a thing with, with the practice of mindfulness that when you sit to do an actual meditation, we call that formal mindfulness, right? Formal practice. What you are doing is you're cultivating your ability to bring that to the rest of your day, which is what we call informal practice. So by sitting there, you know, you know, mindfulness meditation is pretty well focusing usually on the breath, but you can focus on a sound or a sensation. You know, it's like you intentionally focus your attention, but as you're doing that, your mind wanders, right? It goes, it it does its thing. Uh, But because you're sitting in that committed posture to observe, you eventually realize your mind has wandered. And in that moment, when you realize that it's wandered, you take a moment to note, where did it go? Mm. So you start gaining insight into what's my mind doing? You know, you start realizing things. In fact, mindfulness meditation is also known as insight meditation, because Mm. it, it really is about observing the mind. So with, when you do that on an ongoing basis, what you get better at is realizing you are the observer, not the thoughts, right? Mm. You are the awareness. So when you have pain in your knee, is the awareness in pain? No. Is the observer in pain? No. The knee is where it's in pain. So mm. as you cultivate that, you get better at watching and understanding the mind. So one conclusion I've come to in doing all this work with, you know, in my psychologist practice and in my own practice uh, 
is that a lot of our thoughts are involuntary. They're involuntary. You don't sit there and torture yourself with the fear that you're not going to pass the exam or get the job. Who will do that? <laughs> right? Yeah. So they just when come you in. realize that they're involuntary, uh, I mean, now with neuroscience, we know that when we're thinking, our neurons are firing. And that when you have certain habits, like say anxious thinking or depressive thinking, they find that they're neural pathways that fire the same way. So they're mm -hmm. very automatic. So you ask me how I apply this or what, you know, I don't know that, you know, we can say they're tricksters. So, but um, you, you learn to watch yourself. And when you watch yourself in, in the mindfulness class, we say that you don't practice mindfulness and awareness. You're in an automatic pilot of reactivity. Mm -hmm. Something triggers you to react with mindfulness because you're better out of serving. You know, you're triggered. You're observing. You feel angry or frustrated or afraid. But because you're watching it, you create a space to be able to respond. Mm -hmm. So we say rather than reacting, we learn to respond. And one of the mindfulness therapies uh, called uh, acceptance and commitment therapy speaks about how that responding can be based on your values you know, for me on your principles. So if I hold a principle that I want to be about respect in the world, right? And somebody triggers me and somebody triggers me, then I want to respond in a respectful way, even if I'm angry and I want to mm. slap them and swear at them, <laughs> right? With mindfulness, I'm aware I'm triggered. I'm aware I'm angry. I'm aware I want to attack. But in my awareness, I choose to respond from the place of the committed values and principles that I carry with mm. me. And so that's, for me, that's how I live my life. I, it's really helped me to, to have more ability to respond in a way that is in integrity with the vision of who I want to be in the world. Mm. So you have a formal practice that helps you tune these kind of capabilities to then take that off mm -hmm. your meditation and into your life and throughout every exchange in your life it sounds like that's i think that's the goal right that's the end goal of 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 this type of practice what about mm -hmm. for the the wildly busy people you know i struggle i am a mom too i have you know a job and lots of things going on lots of titles that i i wear in my life. And, you know, how do you, how do you deal or how do you advise people that are just way too busy to sit and think about a meditation practice? And how, how do you, how do you advise them to start incorporating these types of tools into their lives? Mm -hmm. You know, when I did the training, my very first training for becoming a mindfulness teacher was with John Kabat-Zinn. I got lucky. I, I, I was you one met of the him? last... Yes, I met him, I hugged him, I took pictures with him, I gave him a gift and everything like it was beautiful. <laughs> I remember doing the body scan and saying, I can't, I don't want to fall asleep, I want to hear the whole thing. Um, <laughs> anyways, like he would say for the for the mindfulness-based stress reduction, people are expected to practice 45 minutes a day. And I remember thinking, there's no way we can get people mm. to do 45. And I'm in a, I'm, I was in a university setting at the time, you know, so a lot of the people I used to support were students. And so I raised my hand and I said, oh, I don't know about that. And he <laughs> said, well, you have to ask of people 
and have faith in them and they will deliver is what he said. Um, so, you know, he's an optimist, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the two things there, it is very hard to establish a daily practice. It took me um, about five years. I was lucky that in my work, I used to run a Wednesday drop-in, right? So I, I thought, well, if nobody shows up, I'll just meditate by myself. So <laughs> I would teach mindfulness-based uh, groups. So I, I would, you know, guide meditation, but I would do it there. And then uh, my commitment was that when I'm falling asleep, I'll, I'll fall asleep meditating. So then every day. So that's the first suggestion I make. Mm-hmm. You lie down to go to sleep, right? So if you if you turn off that light, and you close your eyes, go straight into meditation, focus on your breath, mm-hmm. the journey of the in-breath, the journey of the out-breath. So I did that for a few years. And then I went to John Kabat-Zinn's uh, training, that first eight-day training. I don't know what he said or what he did, <laughs> that when I came back, I started practicing every day. There's just some, if you read any of his books, there's something about when I read his books that really get me motivated to keep mm. it up. So he's a good, you know, a good resource to read. John Kabat-Zinn, he has several It sounds books. like you were really inspired and you drank the Kool-Aid and. Um... Absolutely. And, <laughs> and, you know, once you do it every day, to me, I mean, it's been since, I think I did that training in 2010. Um, it just, it's really like brushing teeth. And if for any yeah. reason, you know, I, I'm not able, like last two days ago, the last two days I started work at eight. So I just, I wasn't able to get up at five to meditate. Mm-hmm. Um, it's okay because this morning I got up and I came down and sat in my spot and did my meditation. So um, first of all, you have to the commitment. You, you have to just believe that you can do it. And in the class, I say to people, look at your week, look at your week. You have your calendar. You know, you got brought the kids off. You have this podcast. You have, you know, this appointment. You have this, and you will see the gaps where you could insert fifteen minutes. You know, yeah. forty-five sounds awesome, and, and yes, that's you know. But a lot of people, when they can't do the forty-five, then they don't do anything. So mm. I always say, if you can start with that, I would suggest the informal practice. The very first retreat I took, Kamala, uh, she's a meditation teacher. She told us that when she started learning mindfulness, she was a mother of two or three kids, maybe a single mom. She used to do meditation when she washed dishes. She used to do meditation when she showered, when she cleaned the floor. And the way you do that is you just pay attention to your senses in that activity. So if you're washing dishes, you would notice the smell of the soap, you would look at the bubbles, you would hear the sound of the water, you would feel the sensation of the water and the soap in your hands. That's mindfulness. Mm. So if if any of you are very busy, you could just make that intention, set the intention that you will practice mindfulness. Mm. The Mm. other suggestion I've made is decide on one activity you do every day, to be your practice if you can't sit and do formal practice. So you can say, every time I wash my hands, we wash our hands several times a day, particularly nowadays, right? (laughs) So make that your meditation. Do the 20 seconds or however long it takes, really paying attention to the sensations of the water, the soap, the drying of your hands, and then just take one five-second check-in. How am I doing right now? 
Mm -hmm. Do I feel rushed? Oh, I feel tension in my chest or I feel really open and happy and then Mm -hmm. carry on. Mm. So we can keep it alive with those little bits, little bite-sized pieces for those that aren't quite ready to do the sitting formal practice. I love that. One of the things that I, I like to do is when I'm driving, I like to see if I can feel the sun on somewhere on my body, you know, paying attention to the road and all that stuff. But can I feel the heat of the sun anywhere on my body right now through the window? Mm -hmm. Something that Mm -hmm. I like to do. And it's so small, but it brings you back into your body. And I find that when we're making decisions in, in business, you know, sometimes just the cue of where does this, where are you feeling this in your body right now? Um, it's super weird for people. They are like, excuse me, what did you just say? But I find that it really gets to clarity fast. It's like a, a, a secret weapon trick. Where are you feeling this in your body? What's your body telling you about this decision right now? And if people just take a moment, then all of a sudden, you know, not every time, but a lot of the time, some kind of clarity will bubble to the surface for them. It's, it's a superpower, (laughs) the checking Mm -hmm. in. I want to talk about your research. I know it was a while ago, but it really, you started talking about it with respect to the, the, the mom factor and the female factor. Um, can we talk a little bit about your research and your book? Um, you know what, I think we know what inspired you to do that now with the story of your daughter. Is that, is that what inspired you to do that research or was that before? Oh, it was way before. Way before. So tell us about mm-hmm. this this path and, and what you studied and what you learned. I think it's really helpful for us to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you look at researchers, most of the time, somebody researches something that uh, that they've experienced or somebody they love has gone through. Or So of course, you know, me being a mother, um, it's not only that I was a mother, is that I you know, I had a bit of a rough childhood. Um, and uh, when I grew up, I wanted to not give them a rough childhood, right? So mm-hmm. if you look at, at my book, I, I tell the story of how I thought I was going to raise my daughters without ever needing therapy, which is a joke, really. I mean, I realized mm-hmm. soon after that that was, so then I used to joke with them. Um, <laughs> I was ironing um, spot by spot on a white onesie because my daughter wanted to be a Dalmatian for Halloween Mm -hmm. and so I was ironing spot by spot you know those sticky things all over and I said to her if you're ever at a therapist's office and you're talking about how angry you are at me you remember this moment that I'm ironing this and you know it's just a joke right (laughs) so eventually I realized that it wasn't possible but I but I really as a psychologist I I felt that uh, first I was very interested in preventing children from growing up with trauma. So mm-hmm. I was very, so I developed a parenting class and I, and as I evolved, I started feeling for the mothers, yeah. you know, for yeah. the challenge of mothers. So one day I, I was at a, at, I was at a mall and I went through a bookstore, they had a sale and, uh, and I saw this book, uh, uh, about the history of motherhood. I thought, oh, that sounds cool excellent book wow it's it's a, so as I read it you know she goes from the beginnings like you know the prehistoric times almost to modern times and how kids have been mothered so differently throughout history mm-hmm. and throughout cultures so then that said to me wow well there's no really one way to mother 
right? Mm -hmm. So then I decided that I was going to do my research on motherhood. And then when I started my PhD, talking to my professors that supervised me, um, we, we looked at how there's been um, the, the, the concept of mothers being oppressed in society was well documented, right? That the patriarchal approach uh, to society oppress mothers, right? They told them you have to be perfect. You have to be present. You have to be mm-hmm. loving. You have to da, 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 da. But nobody had looked at women who had actually woken up and realized that that was, you know, societal pressures. And so then I started, <clears throat> then I looked at resistance, right? Women who resist, who rebel. Mm. And so that's how it came about. Um, at first I thought, wh- where am I going to find these people? We're, we all buy into this. We call it the discourse of motherhood, right? Like the, the set of beliefs and myths about what a mother should be. You should be present. You should uh, be empathic. You should uh, put your their needs before yours. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not going to do it well if you go to work, et cetera, et cetera. But were there mothers out there who had figured out that this is, uh, you know, patriarchal myths? Um, and there was when I put out my, this is 2001 or 2002. So we didn't have the, the web as it is today. I mean, the web existed, but put out an ad somehow in some blogs or something. And I got responses from all over the world. I ended mm-hmm. up only interviewing local people. Uh, we didn't have this Zoom stuff yet and so on, right? That's how long it was. But, and so I ended up finding these women that, uh, that thought, that saw themselves as rebelling against these beliefs. Mm-hmm. And when you look at today, 20 years later, compared to back then, have you personally seen shifts and growth and more equity in the world with respect to how mothers are expected to behave? Or is it similar now that it was 20 years ago? I know 20 years ago, you think we would have evolved. I'm not really seeing, um, you know, I don't think that discourse has changed um in the um there was a book that was written uh, around the time that I was doing my literature review called Perfect Madness on this woman that lived in England for a few years and then came back to the U.S. and in, I guess in England where she lived it was quite different I mean the pressure on mothers wasn't as bad and and she documents the degrees of anxiety that mothers have mm. because you're today you're still getting the message that your kids can get screwed up if you don't do it right. That's mm-hmm. still present, right? Uh, you're still told that you need to be empathic and loving. And if you're not, your kids are going to end up with mental health issues. Mm-hmm. I mean, as soon as you hear, sadly, that some young kid has gone and shot half a high school, the first thing people think is bad family to mm-hmm. this day. That hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. So even though my research goes back, you know, incredibly two decades, um, my observation and experience is that, you know, people today still live in fear, really, with certain anxiety or fear that if they don't do it right or give their kids all the opportunities or protect their self-esteem, da, 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 the kids are going to grow up messed up. I mean, you, today you're hearing about helicopter parents, mm-hmm. right? 
and helicopter parents, which I really have an issue with the label because it's a judgmental label. They're only a product of what they're being told that if you're very involved, if you're very loving, if you're very empathic, if you're very present, you're going to give your kids the best chance. But the sad thing is that that experiment hasn't worked. When I worked at SFU with the population of young people who had been raised in this manner, um, they they were having a harder time coping, dealing with stress mm -hmm. than, yep. than young people 20 or 30 years before. And I heard it from professors, actually. My favorite professor from my undergrad that I met in 1986, in 2004, five, I had coffee with him and he said to me, what's happening? Why are the students so much more anxious than they were 20, 30 years ago? So that's, not, and, I, and I'm not saying that they're anxious because of parenting. Um, they just really feel like they need the parents' involvement, right? Mm. And that's right. where. They've never had to figure anything difficult out for themselves, maybe. And they've always had that helper in their lives. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, let's talk about that. I have a daughter, she's seven. And I'm very interested in making sure this social construct is obliterated by the time she's my age. So what can I do? I mean, really, the only people that are going to fix this is are the mothers. Like we can't wait for men to change, right? We have to support each other. We have to create a sisterhood and support each other in this rebellious, you know, what is perfect motherhood bullshit that, <laughs> that is untrue and mythical. And so, you know, what can we do differently, um, you know, as mothers of children today? Um, one of the things that comes to mind is just supporting each other if, if, you know, like creating that village, right? Okay, you're going away for work. I got you. Well, let me drive her to gymnastics for you. Like that kind of thing, that that village mentality comes to mind for me. Um, you know, what else can we do? What else can we do to obliterate these social constructs in your mind? The study I did, one of the findings was that these women that I interviewed had caught on to the fact that there is a social discourse um, that comes from after the Second World War, right? Women were working during the war. And so when mm -hmm. the men came back, they had to get women back in the house. So then this whole ideology of you're the one that belongs in the home and you're the one that can nurture and you're the, um, you know, that's kind of how it started evolving. Um, so these women had caught on to that and were questioning it. Mm -hmm. So the first suggestion I would make is question your beliefs. Right? Like, where do they come from? Uh, do you really believe that your kids are that fragile? Because it's not only the discourse of motherhood, you know, you got to be present, you got to be empathic, you, you have to put their needs first and all that stuff. It's that there's a discourse of childhood. If you look at the history of childhood, you go back a century or two, and there was a time where kids were being were seen as evil because they were born from the sin. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, that's where baptism comes from in, 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 in the Catholic Church, right? That they have to remove the sin. Mm. And so they, they, they were annoyances. There was a time in history where baby, there was, you know, high baby mortality. And so the moms, the, the, the upper classes moms would give their babies to a wet nurse for a year or two. The baby survived and they would be returned. So 
So when you see that history, you see that humanity has survived, right? We, of course, we have knowledge today that kids need secure attachments. They need to feel safe. They need to feel loved. That, that's not changed. But love has turned into sacrifice. Love mm -hmm. has turned into they count more than you. And I'm thinking, if you have a family of three or four with one or two children, why are the kids more worthy or valuable than the parents? That makes no sense to me, right? So I would say question, you know, question. This, this thing that's making you anxious, oh my God, I didn't put the kids to bed for two nights in a row. They're going to be scarred. Are they really going to be scarred? You know, do they know you love them? Do they know you're committed to them? So they had to figure out how to go to sleep. Okay, well, that might not be a bad thing, right? Mm -hmm. So we pressure ourselves with these social discourses that pressure us. So questioning is one, because one of the findings that was significant in my study was that women who question feel empowered. Mm. And that I found out later, because I didn't continue in the field of research, that that study changed the the focus of research in the area of motherhood mm -hmm. people started looking at empowered mothers and empowering mothers more than just documenting that mothers are oppressed by this discourse so when you question when you say i don't i don't buy that or why am i doing this mm -hmm. why am i repeating this some of the answers may be in your own history right like i myself you know, had an experience of, uh, of trouble in my childhood. So I was going to be the outstanding mother. So my kids wouldn't feel abandoned like I did. Mm -hmm. And so when I asked myself, why am I so involved with my daughters? Of course, first I say, because that's what moms do. And most moms would agree. But if I dig, which I have, I realize that I don't want them to think of me in any other way than my mom was the best. And so I had to let go of that because that's gone in the way of me setting some boundaries or taking care of myself sometimes. So, so the layers are not only the discourse, there's also your history. And in my research and in my interviews with women, that came up as well. The way their mothers had been had an impact in what they questioned because the women I interviewed didn't question all of it. They questioned parts of it and they also went with some of the parts of the discourse. So what I found is that even those of us who question will still buy into parts of the discourse and question others. Mm. You can't exist completely outside of social discourses because then you won't really belong. So true. One of the words that came up for me when you were describing your story is the word guilt. Um, that mm -hmm. guilt that we feel if we're going away for work or if we're missing it, like you said, two bedtimes in a row or you name it, mm -hmm. there's guilt. It's we're a guilt ridden society as mothers. And so maybe when we question our beliefs, we also can question our, our emotions. And, and when the guilt feeling comes up, where is this coming from? Is this coming from society or am I, am I, should I be guilty right now? Really? Or is mm -hmm. this something that's coming from outside of myself? Right. And I think most of the time we'll find that the guilt is coming from outside of ourselves, you know, and, and the kids are fine. In fact, they're probably better off. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, and one I, of the interesting things is that in my study, I think it was about 80, 80 or 90% of the women didn't feel guilt. I love it. Yes. I love it. 
it's something that I personally struggle with now and then if I if say I go away on a business trip or something like that guilt a little bit of guilt on oh so and so has to look after them or my husband has to take on a bigger burden or they're going to miss me all the things but at the end of the day when you think about what parenting is it's also paving the path and if I want a strong you know female growth trajectory for my daughter. I want her to know that she can do whatever the hell she wants when she grows up and mom's going to go do whatever she wants to do, including yoga <laughs> at bedtime sometimes, you know? So they, they watch you, they watch how you treat people. They watch how you take care of yourself. And if you're constantly, constantly sacrificing your wellness and your, and your well being to help them out, that's, you know, they'll, they'll think they need to do that too. And then you're perpetuating this problem, this, this, this construct. Um, I love this, this idea of rebelling against social norms and, and, and picking and choosing different pieces of that from your research. Um, is there one or two takeaways from your research that you, you kind of use, uh, over and over again, when you're talking to mothers, most specifically, as I said earlier, just question though, and, and not only about motherhood, why are we, why do we all buy into the discourse of thinness, for example, right? Yeah. It's a discourse. Look at history, look at cultures, right? Um, I believe that women really need to gain their empowerment in our world. Mm. Uh, a lot of the messages, the way that patriarchal systems work, they disempower us. And we feel that in our personal little lives, we're somewhat empowered. But but I think a, a higher level of empowerment is when you question these things that society is telling you you should be or how you should be, mm. uh, and then come to your own conclusions. So I think that's one uh, very important one. And the other one is, I, I alluded to it a few minutes ago, I used to do a lot of public speaking to parents of uh, elementary school kids and, and um, preschool kids. And um, it's this, this understanding that kids needs to come first. Um, sure, if you have a newborn and they're hungry at two in the morning, you got to get up. Diapers dirty, you got to change it. But, you know, that's, that's a short period. Mm -hmm. As kids get older, their needs are important, but so are yours and so are your husband's and so are your relationship. Mm -hmm. This idea that we have to cater to them first is really getting these children to grow up feeling entitled to mm. being number one. And when they're not number one, they struggle. So yeah. no, you're not number one. You're one of a community, yes. right? Use, watch your language when you have them participate in household stuff they're not helping they're participating because if they're helping they're doing you a favor you're supposed to thank them right but if you say we're a community of three in this house and we all work together so meals have to be prepped kitchen has to be cleaned laundry has to be done we all have to work together this concept that mothers are there to cater to kids is problematic and so if you change your mindset to say there's three human beings in this house, what are the needs of each? What are your needs as a human being, as a mom, as a person? What are your husband's or partner's needs? What are the children's needs? And then look at it. You can always do it like 
okay, how much leisure time is left after all the obligations? Oh, well, we have 15 hours a week. Okay, well, I'm going to take two of those for me or three. Yeah. And as a couple, we're going to take two or three. And then, yes, as a family, we'll do this and so on. But mm -hmm. to me, that's one thing that I find is burning moms out. They're burning yeah. out because they're, like you said, you have a million things on the go and whatever's left is for them. Uh, so so true. to me, that is, I get passionate about it because I see it so much, you mm -hmm. know, the, and we do live in a world, I grew up in Mexico where my parents always had a maid. So my mom didn't have to clean the house and the bathrooms and do the laundry. So that takes away a lot. Whereas in our world, it's, that's very expensive to pay, mm -hmm. you know, to get it done. So we end up having to do that as well. So your mm -hmm. free time is very limited. Mm -hmm. Right. So to really say, okay, we're going to dedicate some to, to the kids and to family time, but yeah. each human being needs to look at their needs and meet them. Absolutely. I want to touch on one other thing that I think is so important. You brought up earlier in the conversation and that is therapy for children and the idea that we're failing if our kids need therapy or if, if we put our kids in some kind of maintenance therapy, even, um, I want to touch on that because it's something that I'm very seriously considering doing early for my children, not as a, like, here's a problem, go fix it, but more as a maintenance and a, a third party thing. Can you touch on that? And how, in your opinion, if therapy is, is not, is, is a failure if of a, as a parent, which I think mm -hmm. I know what you're going to say. You know, the, the concept of my kids not needing therapy means I did a perfect job. So you first have to accept that that's impossible, whether it's you or school experiences or other experiences, we all have, we will all be wounded growing up. You can, mm -hmm. you, as a mother, you have to accept that that's a reality because that will reduce your anxiety, mm -hmm. right? And the other one is uh, people misunderstand what therapy is. I think people think that therapy is for the people that have a, a, a mental illness, and uh, depends what therapy you, therapist you see, but at least my approach is, is, is very skill-based. So learning tools, oh, I have an anxious mind. Well, it may be related to trauma and we can work on that, but what do you do when you have an anxious thought, right? And that's where the mindfulness therapies come in. Or, you know, I tend to be abrupt when I get angry and then I say things I don't want to say. So I would say that, I'm a huge believer. If, if we can give these tools to children, awareness of emotions, knowing how to regulate emotions. I mean, that's huge. And so many people don't know how to do that. So then the emotion takes over. And then again, they act reactively instead of responding, as we said earlier. So the idea that, you know, there's something wrong with you if you go to therapy is quite problematic because mm -hmm. it's, it's, um, therapists are not there just for people who have mental illness. We have training to teach communication, to teach self-awareness, to teach self-regulation, to teach communication. So you can go to therapy to get better at those things. And yeah, kids, schools should introduce mindfulness in schools and understanding of emotions and communication mm -hmm. uh, to children. Like a coach, right? You have no trouble having someone else teach your kid how to play hockey, but 
there's something wrong with having someone else teach your kid how to regulate their emotions. Like, it's just weird. We need to get over that. Don't we? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that for me personally, because it's something that I've been thinking about very strongly lately. Um, So where can people find you, Erica, if they want to learn more or talk to you or book a session? Um, Where can people find you? My website is mindfulnessyvr.com. And, um, you know, so they can find me there. They can find my email. I'm not currently running the mindfulness based stress reduction class because of the pandemic. I'm still trying to sort out when is it safe to have 20 people in a room together. Um, So hopefully in the near future, Uh, but I'm still, you know, obviously in private practice. Uh, There's a chapter that did not make it to the book uh, because everybody told me that it didn't fit, although I did think it fit. And I still have that chapter and that is on children's resilience and okay. parents understanding that kids have resilience. So if people are interested, they can email me and I can email them a PDF of that. That sounds good. Erica, it's been such a pleasure. I've learned a lot. I'm inspired. Thank you so much for your time today. And maybe we'll have you on the show again to talk about that stigma. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Okay, Thank you, you take care. Me. Cheers. You.